Yeah, thank you very much. Hebrews 12, I think mainly verses 3 to 11 this evening. Um, that first hymn we sang, that first song, I think is attributed sometimes to John Calvin. Um, and, um, of course, he was part of the, the great movement of the Reformation in the 16th century that got the church back to the Bible, back to justification by faith, back to these liberating doctrines of grace. Um, and also back to, um, I guess, uh, a, a sort of a practical Christianity. Uh, I think what had happened was that the knowledge of God or Christianity become kind of uh, stuck in the universities, amongst the scholars, as a purely academic subject. And uh, they, these reformers like Luther, Calvin, and so on, they, they handed they handed the knowledge of God back to the children of God. Indeed, in, in the, the preface of Calvin's great work, The Institutes, he says this, uh, and I, I admit it's a pretty meaty tome to read, so I'm not saying you need to go home and read it. Uh, but it, he said, this is for the children of God. And of course, all they were doing was they were following the Bible. They were biblical people. And so what we find in the Bible is that when the Bible lays down these great foundations, these ultimate um, foundations uh, regarding the knowledge of God, it goes on always, doesn't it, to bring to bear a, a spiritual or practical point such as we find in Hebrews 12 and the title of my message this morning, so that you may not grow weary. Uh, these things are written for a particular purpose and point, aren't they? So that you, Christian believer, particularly those who are maybe at the sharp edge um, of, of persecution, uh, but I think uh, more broadly in, in all kinds of suffering, um, may not grow weary and, and faint-hearted. Uh, that's a lovely outcome, isn't it? Uh, but instead of that, to live, verse 9, with all that that means, biblically and spiritually, uh, to live unto God, I guess, uh, and and instead of growing weary and faint-hearted and giving up and maybe falling away, uh, being motivated, verse 12, to lift up those drooping hands, get back into the race, back on your feet, strengthen the weak knees, and so on. Um, perhaps you've noticed how in the Bible, in New Testament, the Bible generally, there is much said to Christians to ministers, to Christians, to pastors, about not getting discouraged. It's obviously a real possibility in Christian life, I think as Henry prayed earlier, to become discouraged and to lose heart. So the Bible addresses it again and again. Now, 2 Corinthians 4 would be another example of that, but here it is in Hebrews 12. The whole purpose, you see, of this theology, of this knowledge of God, of this um, truth is that uh, we, this ultimate truth, this deep truth, is that we might not grow weary and lose heart. So that, that's where we are. Well, but how? How so? How, what, what is going to motivate us? What is going to incentivize us? What is going to move us uh, so that we uh, may not grow weary and faint-hearted? Well, I think it's quite clear, isn't it? The, the Bible is, is wonderfully logical. Uh, it makes sense. It follows through. And I think, therefore, we see uh, two major things, particularly just in 3 to 11. So it's a fairly short passage of just, uh, what's that, nine verses, I think. Um, two major things to consider, to think about, to meditate upon. 
Um, consider, the verse one's very obvious, isn't it? Verse three, consider him. And we've been doing that with some of our hymns. Uh, that's that very moving one, I think. Um, oh, uh, well, the last one was moving enough, but the one before was even more moving, I think. I can't think what the, the words were, but I often find that very moving um, as we think of the sufferings of Christ. Uh, and then um, consider, the second thing to consider is from 5 to 11, isn't it? And that's, that's a section that speaks about um, the discipline of the Lord. So consider Christ and consider the discipline of the Lord. And, and in that way... Um, be motivated that you may not grow weary or, or faint-hearted. Um, let's start with that. Then consider him, verse 3. That's Jesus, of course. That's very clear, as we can see from uh, verse 2, of course. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, faith verse 2. So consider him. Consider Jesus. Now, this is, of course, after chapter 11. If you're familiar with Hebrews chapter 11, the great gallery of what do they call it? The Gallery of Faith. Um, all of these great, should I call them great? I don't know. I'm not even going to call them heroes, but all these people of God. Uh, Abraham, uh, Moses, uh, Jacob, Joseph, um, they're all, all in there. Not all of them, actually, but most of them from Old Testament times before Christ. And they are, of course, they're examples of faith, aren't they? And then in chapter 12, the, the, the author wants to give us the ultimate example of faith. Indeed, the founder of, of faith and the perfecter of faith himself. In some versions, the pioneer and perfecter, the author and finisher. Verse 2, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now, do you see what two aspects, as you look at the passage, what two aspects of him we are to consider so that we might not grow weary? Well, the first is very, very clear, isn't it? Because it's there in verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Um, well, let me, actually, let me reach back. Let me make that the second one. I'm going to make that the second one, if I may. Um, I want to reach back to, to, uh, to verse 2 for the first. The first is that we are to look to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. How did he endure the cross? How did he endure all that shame? Not just pain, but shame and humiliation. He did it by looking forward to the glorious joy ahead of him beyond the cross, through the resurrection, the ascension, and then seated at the right hand of God. And with that in his sights, he was able to endure all the awful shame. And that's, that's the way for us too, isn't it? That's the way for us to go. We are also, like Jesus, the pioneer, to look forward to the glorious future that lies ahead of us because of him. This, of course, was, was a major part of the faith of Abraham and Noah and so on and so forth in chapter 11. It's called the, often the chapter of faith, but actually it's just about as much the chapter of hope. Because this faith is full of hope, is it not, in chapter 11. Of people looking forward to something so wonderful, it enabled them to persevere to the end. And if, if you go back to chapter 11, verse 1, faith is the 
assurance of things hoped for. Hoped for, being in the, the old NIV, that the faith is being sure of what we hope for. Again, it's full of hope, isn't it? It's full of forward-looking. And that is for us too. Our hope has to be alive, doesn't it? Our Christian hope has to be so alive, I would say excited, if we are not going to grow weary and lose hope, lose heart or hope. Um, that is to say we are to have that living hope, that lively hope of First Peter 1 verse 3. And the question is, 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 it, is it lively? Is, is our, is our, are our hearts jumping up and down with, with the excitement about what is coming when that glory bursts upon us? And if we are looking forward to that bright tomorrow, the Bible assures us that that will give us a certain strength to endure. Romans 8, 2 Corinthians 4, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Romans 8, 18. I had some kids yesterday in the street as I was thinking about this. Telling someone, just a neighbor I think, shouting it, We're going on holiday! We're going on holiday! <laughs> We're going swimming in the sea! <laughs> they were so excited. It's the kind of excitement we're meant to have, isn't it, about our future in Christ and the glory that is going to burst upon us. We will be excited then for sure. That living hope. And that's what Christ had and that's what pulled him through, didn't it? Uh, of course, you know, we think of him having a, 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 an unfair advantage, but actually it was just regular things that pulled him through. It was that hope, wasn't it? The other aspect of him we are to consider is in 3 and 4, of course, and that is the depth and the intensity of his suffering. We're to consider that. We're to think long and hard about that, and we're to compare that with our own suffering. Now, these guys, these guys who were being written to, these Jewish believers, um, they, they were having a hard time, I can tell you. And we'll have a look at that a little bit later in chapter 10. But... Um, but, but what, see, what he says is, look, just look at, look at how much worse it was for Jesus. He says, in your struggle against sin, which, which, might, which probably takes in the hostility that they were experiencing, which included the confiscation of property and imprisonment and, and such like in chapter 10, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He says, just think about what Jesus went through. Compare, compare and contrast. And I guess if we, can, if we compare ourselves with this, we, we have to peg back a whole lot further, don't we? I was playing chess with an old friend on Thursday. He spoke about his aches and pains, which are considerable and constant. However, he then said, but they are nothing compared to his. True. So clearly it could be much worse. And we are to consider, we are to think about, we are to estimate, to calculate, to, to ponder to meditate upon how much more he went through for us than we are ever called to go through for him. So that, that, that I think, is, is, is the first thing that we are to, to consider, isn't it? To consider Christ. Mo motivated by looking ahead to that joy that was set before him and suffering such intense 
hostility against himself that, that, that we'll never, never, never know. And then the second major point, a bit longer. The thing to consider, to remember, not to forget, verse 5, have you forgotten? Don't forget. And this is, this is the kind of forget that is, or remember that is, you know, practically speaking. It's not like, oh yes, I, 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 I taught it last week in the Sunday school or something. But actually to live in the light of something, that's the meaning here, isn't it? Practically speaking. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And here the passage teaches us to treat, to treat such suffering, particularly, I think, hostility against us, people making fun of us, people humiliating us because we're believers. But I think also, I think we have a right to see all suffering, all struggle as the discipline of the Lord within his good hands, within his providence, the discipline of our Father in heaven. It is for discipline, he says, doesn't he? Verse 7, that you have to endure. And NIV, endure hardship as discipline. That is to say, behind these experiences of hardship lies the hand of God, the good hand of God, of your Father in heaven. These are, these are not merely chance occurrences. They're not merely random acts. They're not merely bad luck. They are the work of God in your life. The intention of God behind. We've been in Genesis for I don't know how long at our church. A year and a half, I think. Uh, and we're all under that great umbrella verse of Genesis 50.20. You meant it for evil, brothers, but God meant it for good. And that puts God right behind everything, doesn't it? There's an intention. It's not just that God makes the best of a bad mess and tries to clean up afterwards but that his intention is right behind it this is how we're to understand these bad things that happen to us this is how we're to read them to interpret them and moreover this discipline this training this correction and, and it doesn't simply mean in terms of punishment although that is clearly here as well um that, that discipline, that experience of discipline, proves that we are his sons, his children. And that he loves us because he disciplines those he loves. And he chastises every son whom he receives. It proves that we are his children and that we are dearly loved by him. And that's a bit of a revolution in our thinking, isn't it? As we think back to some of the awful things that may have happened to us or may be happening to us and the hardships and struggles and hostilities that we may be facing, we need to understand that these are nothing less than the discipline of the Lord. Now, of course, they are still the fault of the person who is that still. There's still a responsibility there. But they are nothing less than the discipline of the Lord who is your Father who loves you. And actually, it was this kind of read or interpretation that allowed Joseph, you remember in the great story of Joseph in those last 14 chapters in, in Genesis, that allowed him to forgive his brothers so freely and fully and joyfully at the end of Genesis. It really blew them away, I think, the way he did that. Because he knew that God was behind it all. 
It allowed him to let it go. It's a whole new angle on suffering, isn't it, for the people of God? It's like climbing to the top of a hill, or perhaps uh, as you go on your holiday this, this year over, over to some sunnier climbs. Don't fancy it myself at the moment, far too hot. But um, as, as you write, do you, do you know what it's like? You, you, you come out of, I don't know, I was going to say Manchester Airport. Why am I thinking of that? Well, it could be somewhere here, couldn't it? Um, and it's a bit dull and dreech. Uh, that's a good Scottish word. Um, but, uh, and you get above the clouds and suddenly the, the glorious sunlight of God pours in through the window. And you get, that, you get that higher view, don't you? The Bible gives us that higher view on these things. Consider that. Meditate on that. This is the discipline of the Lord. The training of the Lord. The correction of the Lord. So that you will not grow weary and faint-hearted. And, and uh, there's kind of, I guess there's kind of three parts to this, this section. So then um, th- those, those earlier verses speak about uh, the reality of discipline. Uh, they are clear proof that you are his children, his sons. And um, if, you weren't, if you weren't going through that, you would be illegitimate children and not sons. And then we got another section from 9, I think 9 and and 10 adds something more with the words besides. And besides means in addition or furthermore or moreover. Uh, here's something else to think about. Uh, and here he tells us to think in this manner. Uh, this is a very natural experience, isn't it? To be disciplined by our fathers. Um, none of us had perfect fathers. Nonetheless, um, discipline was part and parcel of family life. And he says that we know, don't we, at least in hindsight we know, that we respected that. We respected them for it. Um, however, it was done to some extent. Now, that needs to, need, need to be careful with that. But we, to some extent, we appreciate the principle that discipline needs to take place in uh, uh, parenting. Fair enough. Um, so now there's this argument from the lesser to the greater with the words how much more. It's a bit of a favorite of um, the, the, the writers of the Hebrews to use the how much more argument. Um, the lesser to the greater. So we respected the lesser discipline from our lesser human fathers. How much more should we respect the greater discipline for greater good from the greater father, the father of spirits, who is the ultimate, the, 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 the creator, the ultimate source of all life and breath. For they disciplined us, our fathers, our natural fathers, verse 10, for a short time has seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in or share his holiness. I must say that seems, that seems pretty generous to human fathers <laughs> as I think about uh, my own um, parenting and Probably true of us all, isn't it? At our, at our best, I guess we could say, at our best, we did what seemed best. We made a hash of it sometimes, didn't we? Many times we got it wrong. And that's kind of implied, isn't it? They tried their best, seemed best. But our Father in heaven, here's the implication, definitely and always disciplines us for our good. For our real, spiritual, and everlasting good. So again, he, he's, he's encouraging us, he's persuading us to believe that these experiences, as bad as they may have been, as traumatic as they may have been, what they may be, 
are for your good. Because they come from the hand of your loving Heavenly Father. And then in verse 11, there's this note of realism, which I really appreciate. I'm very grateful for this. You see, this is not all kind of blasé, never mind, chin-up stuff. It's, it's all going to be fine, don't worry. But it acknowledges that things can be painful. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. It's absolutely true, isn't it? Sometimes it's very painful. And the word painful has the sense not merely of physically painful, but emotionally painful. It can be sad. It can be grievous. It can be heavy. It can weigh heavily on our hearts. And what's more, the word chastises in verse 6 It's maybe even stronger. It can mean flogs or whips or scourges. And we might be shocked by that, the thought that the Father is going to somehow flog us or whip us. That's a fairly severe experience. But it points to the reality that Christians go through some horrible things. And the fact is, as I said earlier, that these believers, they were experiencing, experiencing some quite nasty things, some quite severe persecution. And that's back in chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. Just take a look at that, and I'll, I'll read those to you in a second. Chapter 10, verse 32. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, converted, became believers, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, Sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the the plundering or the confiscation of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That's the whole sort of, that's the whole looking forward, isn't it, again, in, in Hebrews. We find so much in chapter 11, the joy set before us. Um. So it was, it was quite bad, wasn't it, for them? We must not be blasé about other people's pain or minimize it or dismiss it. It's so easy to do that, isn't it? Um, it, it can be very painful. Not pleasant. And at the time, you know, nothing can really change that. And having faith, having this perspective, as wonderful as it is, having this mind, this mentality, as, 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 as radical as it is, it doesn't take away the pain in the moment, right? It doesn't. Of course it doesn't. It didn't for Jesus. He didn't kind of suddenly have no pain. But how good it is to know, because it's written down here in black and white, isn't it, that the Lord knows it. He understands that it is painful. And indeed, if we were to reach back into the wonderful chapter 4, I started my service this morning with chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, um, including 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has in every respect been tempted or tested or tried as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. So we, we know that the Lord understands it not merely from the perspective of, of his omniscience because he knows everything, but by, by experience he knows it through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He completely understands what it's like for you to feel lonely, for you to feel tempted, for you to feel depressed, uh, multiply, for you to feel yeah, any, 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 any feeling that you have any difficulty. Every, every kind of temptation, the Bible assures us. I mean, how the, how the father must have packed into that short period of his life, 33 years, or maybe just the last three years, two and a half to three years, or every kind of test and trial and temptation, so that he would understand fully everything we go through. So it is painful, isn't it? But then it's only for the moment. It's not forever. And it yields this peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We, we, are, we are the people, don't we, who, who, who live not merely for the moment, but for the future. Um, we, we wisely take into account the consequences of our actions. We think ahead. And we know that what might be fun and pleasurable for a moment may have a bitter taste thereafter. In the previous chapter, we're told that Moses made his wise choice when, in verse 25, he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. We choose, don't we, long-term pleasures over short-term pleasures. Forever pleasures over fleeting pleasures. Eternal pleasures at God's right hand. And so we look forward, don't we, to the, the, the fruit, the yield, there in verse 11. It's, it's that lovely fruit, isn't it? Uh, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Not the disordered fruit of wrongness, but the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Sharing his holiness, verse 10. That's the goal, isn't it, of, of God in all of this, that we might share his holiness, Christian character, the fruit of the Spirit, beautiful fruit of the Spirit. And when I was a student, I was, um, I was in a hall of residence, I caught ch chicken pox and had to go home for a couple of weeks. My Christian group from the hall of residence sent me a Get Better Soon card. They all wrote something in it. One, a witty Northern Irish fellow called Roy wrote, just remember, Ollie, it's all character building. And so it was. He was dead right. It's all character building. It is in order to build character, isn't it, that the Lord puts us through such things. But let me just finally point out that it doesn't happen automatically. That the reaction we make to these things, these happenings, in light of all the truth that we're seeing here, does matter. It matters how we respond. It matters how we react. And I think that uh, is indicated by uh, two, two phrases here. Um, the, the final words of verse 11, to those who have been trained by it, implies that you might not be trained by it. And earlier, sec the second half of verse 9, that we should be subject to, this, to the Father of Spirits and live, or we should submit to the Father of Spirits. That, that to me implies that these things don't 
don't just land on us and they automatically shape us. But it does matter how we respond and react to them. Clearly, we can kick against them. We can be grumpy about it. We can be bitter. We can be resentful. We can be angry. Or we can be subject to them. We can submit to the will of our Heavenly Father. And, of course, that demands a certain acceptance of our circumstances. Not always moaning and groaning and chafing against them. Because they are... In the final analysis, the discipline or training of the Lord. Some of you will know, I think, that the word trained there at the end of verse 11 is the word in Greek, gymnazo, from which we get gymnasium. Vigorous exercise. So what we're being called to here is a a mentality of the gymnasium, of vigorous exercise, of an athlete to these hardships. We find this in other parts of the Bible, don't we? We're, we're, we're urged to, to, to take a, that sort of mentality. We're not easily to be put off by pain or discomfort, particularly when we may face hostility. We are not to shrink back from it. As the author says in chapter 10, these hardships... These hostilities are God's way of training us to become spiritually strong and fit. The young man who came into our service this morning, I've known him all my life actually. Um, He's 18. No, he's going on 18. Um, And you could see immediately that he'd been working out. My son does the same actually, but you can see it in the physique, can't you? Um, Suffering is meant to give us a workout under God, under his good hand. Therefore, consider him, Jesus, who for the joy set before him, the wonderful joy and glory, endured the cross, endured such hostility as we will never know. Consider the discipline of the Lord. These hardships that we face, these hostilities, are, in the last analysis, the discipline of the Lord. They are proof that he loves you and loves you dearly and that he has adopted you forever as his own child. It's good discipline. It's always for your good that you may share his holiness and that peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted, but instead get back in the race, get back on your feet, lift up those drooping hands and weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. May the Lord speak his truth deep into our souls this evening. Let's pray. Oh, Father, these are wonderful but challenging truths to take into our hearts and minds, and we so easily fall back into the default of, this is awful. I wish it wasn't happening. Uh, Please take it away. It's perfectly natural to speak that way to you, and we see Paul himself doing that, and even the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
But, oh, Father, help us also to have this, this attitude, this mentality, that uh, you are uh, at work in our lives, that all of these things, even the, the bad things, the really bad things that may happen to us, are not outside your providence, your, your good hand, your control. Uh, nothing lies outside of that. Uh, we can have confidence that you are treating us as sons, that this is your discipline, and that it is always for our good that we may share your holiness and know in due time that peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who are trained by it. Give us, we pray, grace and wisdom as we consider these things. In the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.